I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hello, welcome to a new Signals format, which I would like to start sliding in between our regular episodes. Doesn't mean the deep dives are going away, it just occurred to me that while the REIB have investigated some major incidents over the years, they are regularly churning out reports on accidents, well, that are still taking place year after year. So it occurred to me that it might be good for us to briefly visit these reports as they come through. But before I go any further, I have to tell you, just in case you're new here, that my name is Dan Fox and I am the producer of the Signals to Danger podcast and a railwayman in my day-to-day life. Now with that brief introduction out of the way, welcome to our first ever REIB Roundup and let's dive into the reports that have been issued over July and August. or heading into our first report then it was issued by the REIB on the 6th of July and it relates to a buffer stop collision at Enfield Town Station on the 12th of October back in 2021 and that gives you an idea of how long some of these investigations can take to do properly. Brief rundown of the accident as according to the report is that at 8.21 in the morning on the 12th of October in 2021 an Arriva Rail London train so a London overground service operated by Arriva hit the buffer stop at Enfield Town in North London at 7.7 miles an hour. Train crashed into the buffer stop, which was damaged in the collision and rode up onto it, coming to a rest with its leading wheels about 800 millimetres above the rails, so almost a metre. No serious injuries resulted from the accident. So the train had been travelling at 10 miles an hour when it was about 69 metres from the buffer stop and the driver briefly applied brakes and then made no further control actions for about 7 seconds up until the point where he had made an emergency stop just before the train hit the buffers, far too late to actually prevent the collision. So about 75 passengers on the train, one reported suffering a minor leg injury, 
and the effects of traumatic shock, while another reported that they were also suffering from traumatic shock, although neither required hospital attendance after they were seen by ambulance staff at the station. Initial thoughts then? Uh, Not great. Arrival at a terminus station is a fairly routine process and happens hundreds of times across the day, across the network, without incident. So, what went wrong? The immediate cause of the accident, as identified by the RIB, was that having controlled the train speed into the platform and through some of the overspeed protection there, the driver didn't then actually break the train to a stop before it collided with the buffers and Well, the highlight here is that there were protections in place to prevent trains from entering the platform too quickly to stop. And they worked because the train entered the platform at a perfect speed to stop. The problem is the driver then didn't actually take care of that last little bit where he actually stops the train. The report then discusses some causal factors, those that actually led to the immediate cause. And the first of these explains how the driver had lost awareness of his driving tasks as the train approached the buffers. He did hit that emergency brake, but it was two metres away from that big red bar across the track in front of him. Um, But he hadn't, like I said, applied any braking for the seven seconds before that. Immediately after the accident, that driver reported to the signal that he had fallen asleep for the last few seconds on the approach to the buffers. He also reported that he woke just before the buffers and applied the emergency brake. And that does sort of tally with the on-train data recorder info. Well, this lack of awareness then... Apparently, possibly down to one of two things, fatigue being the first. The driver stated that he was tired before booking onto his shift due to a lack of sleep and that this was his second early morning shift at work after returning from nine days off. However, there's no evidence that his roster pattern created an exceptional risk of fatigue on the day of the accident. There were a few factors supporting the fact that fatigue was an issue. His partner had a long-term health condition and he reported that as a result he only had about an hour of sleep before his shift and that he was aware of being tired on the drive to work as well when he's driving his train just before the accident. And at, that, at one point, his eyes were stinging and he just wanted to close them. Worth saying, though, that he didn't report this to work and he knew that he was supposed to report if he felt too tired to carry out his driving duties. He didn't do so on this occasion, despite acknowledging that he was very tired and probably not completely fit to work. The driver stated that this was because he did not want to be a further burden to his employer, having already taken significant time off work for other reasons. Now, we did speak to a supervisor when he signed on, and although the supervisor and the driver chatted on the morning of the accident, the supervisor didn't detect that the driver was fatigued or unfit for duty. Part of the supervisor's role was to ensure that drivers sign the declaration of fitness when they start their shift, but admittedly it's harder to recognise fatigue than someone coming in under the influence, you, you, we all know when you're talking to someone if they are, what's the uh, the fair, battered or otherwise. But that being said, there was another factor at play on top of the issue of fatigue, and that is that the driver tested positive for a recreational drug. And it is, of course, possible that its presence affected his situational awareness. Immediately after the accident, Arriva Rail London arranged for the driver to be for cause tested, So we do that in operational instance. The industry will take the driver out, drug and alcohol tests, just to make sure that there isn't anything in their system, to make sure that that hasn't had an influence or uh, involvement in any incidents. So the driver passed the alcohol test, but the urine test for drugs showed positive for a breakdown product of cocaine. 
and a hair test that BTP took five weeks after the accident also tested positive for signs of cocaine. Two recommendations off the back of this report then, the first of which is that Arriva Rail London should review and revise as necessary its procedures for fatigue and attendance management to promote self-reporting by train drivers and other safety-critical staff. And that's so that when they feel that they are or likely to become fatigued in a way that might affect their fitness to safely undertake their duties, that those procedures capture that. The second recommendation was to Network Rail in conjunction with the RSSB, that they should review their processes and their associated guidance for assessing the risk of collision at buffer stops so that realistic values of risk are derived from it. This review should ensure that the contributions of engineered protection systems such as TPWS, Train Protection and Warning System, that we've covered on the main episodes before, are correctly modelled as part of this process. In any case, this one might make for an interesting episode one day, possibly a shorter one. There's not a heck of a lot of detail to dive into it. The report says everything it needs to say, but it's a fairly open and shut case as far as these things go. But... This is, like I said, only meant to be a quick rundown in the uh, spirit of a current affairs piece. So that leaves us now moving on to the next one. So our next incident then, published on the 10th of July. This brings us to Spittle Junction on the northern approach to Peterborough Station. And if you've been keeping up with the news, you'll know that we're talking Lumore. Definitely going to keep this one comparatively brief, as this is something that I do want to cover in a full episode. Quotations straight from the summary of the report then, at around 10.20 hours on the 17th of April 2022, the 08.20 hours Lumo service from Newcastle to London's King's Cross passed over three sets of points at Spittle Junction at the northern approach to Peterborough Station at excessive speed. The maximum permitted speed over the junction is 30 mile an hour, reducing to 25 miles an hour, and the data recorded from the train indicates that these points had been traversed at a speed of 76 miles an hour. The speed of the train over the junction resulted in some sideways movements of the vehicles. This led to some passengers being thrown from their seats and luggage falling from the overhead storage, with some passengers receiving minor injuries. Although the train did not derail and no damage was caused, post-incident analysis has indicated that the train was close to a speed that would have led to it overturning and it was likely that some of the wheels of the vehicles lifted off the rails. Well, wow. One quick sentence to sum this one up then. The driver did not realise his train would be traversing those points. He was under the somewhat mistaken impression that he would be continuing straight ahead through the station, as he did on every other trip he'd ever driven through there, bar one other occasion. He missed the junction indicator, telling him that this was the case, and he only really reacted to the green signal, telling him to proceed. I am going to skip to the immediate cause for this one, and it won't be a surprise when I tell you that train 1 Yankee 80 passed over a junction at excessive speed because the driver had controlled the speed appropriately for the through route rather than the slower diverging route. Going into the causal factors then, these lead with the fact that the driver did not react correctly to the junction indicator at PAPA 468 signal and controlled the train's speed appropriately for the diverging route to platform 1. The signals correctly indicated to him that he was headed through the points and would need to slow down to do so. When we add into this that the driver's awareness of the signal conditions that could be presented at this junction wasn't sufficient to overcome their expectation that the train was to be routed onto the up fast line. 
He expected it, expected it, expected it. But the signals which told him that wasn't going to be the case, he didn't have enough of an awareness about what he could be shown at those signals that he could get past that mental block that he always goes straight ahead, essentially. In essence, the only thing that existed to warn the driver was that junction indicator itself. So no flashing yellow aspects were used on the approach to the signal. All he got with with that green, the feather off to the left that told him he was going through that junction and to that diverging route. Because the train on the approach to the signal was coming up to a red aspect because there was other trains in the section ahead of it. So until it drew close and the signal cleared to green and gave him the junction indication, there was no advance warning that he was going to be taking a diverging route. There is another causal factor that was raised here, and it's a pretty big one. It's that the driver's training did not provide them with sufficient understanding of the conditions that could be expected at this signal. So the driver joined Lumo in September 2020 as one of 16 apprentice drivers who started training before Lumo began passenger services back in 2021. They had no previous train driving experience, so they undertook a full driver training program. Lumo had created the driver training plan to comply with the competence requirements of the Train Driving Licenses and Certificate Regulations 2010. That's a mouthful. The training was delivered in modules with assessments throughout each of the stages and evidence provided by Lumo indicates that the signalling course covered the general operation of junction signals, including junction indicators, flashing aspects, and the general risks of being diverted from fast to slow lines and of being wrongly routed. So diverted from fast to slow or getting a diverging route when you weren't supposed to be diverging. At the time they were assessed, this driver's experience had included 77 accompanied journeys from Newcastle to King's Cross, and this was when they were driving with another qualified instructor in the cab, and between qualifying in February 2022 and the day of the incident, they had driven 23 journeys unaccompanied on the route. On all but one of these journeys, as I said before, their train had been routed through Peterborough Station on the Upfast line by Platform 3, and there was one exception, which was in December 2021, when they were accompanied by another qualified driver. So this meant that the driver had very, very limited experience of driving through Peterborough Station on the Upslow line via Platform 1. Virtually none. So there were some other questions that were asked about the training hours that Lumo set as a minimum for their drivers versus other operators, and the fact that the simulator that the company was using for training didn't actually cover the route that Lumo operated on. They didn't have their own sim. They are, it would be fair to say, they are a very small operator in the grand scheme of things, but they have the benefit of being part of first group. So first group, the transport conglomeration I guess um, who certain companies are no longer part of but that's a different matter altogether Um, so they took advantage of the resources that they could share within the rest of first group and they borrowed time on simulators from another first group talk but the other problem is there that the routes that those talks have on their simulators will be so if it was from the then Transpennine Express, it would have covered routes from Liverpool to Newcastle, potentially on an 802 simulator. If it borrowed it from GWR, it would have covered one of the lines down on GWR's patch, but not necessarily the East Coast main line through Peterborough. Other comments related to the fact that the Class 803 trains that Lumo operates are capable of, well, a pretty high rate of acceleration. They are 
brand new lightweight electric traction and we know that one of the real benefits to electrification and to upgraded stock is that you can get away from signals and from stations very quickly get up to speed trim time off the journeys it's a positive thing but it does mean that from that red signal the train was able to get up to a pretty high speed compared to what some other stock in operation on the network would have managed and had he been traveling through platform three on the fast line then that high speed would have been absolutely not an issue it was the swinging through the points at three times the speed they were meant to that was the uh, the issue in, in mind there so anyway i'm not going to run through everything here this is going to be a full episode at some point but the last two factors that i wanted to hit was that the fact that half of the passenger injuries passenger injuries were caused by cases falling from the overhead racks as the train rocked through those points and that brings to rise some real questions about luggage provision on board and it's probably a question to ask about a lot of new stock. The idea of moving bags and things onto overhead racks that are deeper with more space to put things on is something that we're seeing a lot of trends. The A2X stock that a lot of operators are taking on now have bigger overhead racks and the encouragement is to be able to store more up there. But Lumo is an operator that intends to replace an airline. That's the market that they're going for, is this um, domestic air travel market. So people bring domestic air travel type baggage. It's cases and large holdalls. And when they're going up in overhead racks and there's no, well, not as much storage in other racks away from passenger seats, that meant that this sudden sway through the points left, right, left, right, that threw bags down from the overhead racks, which landed on people's heads causing injuries so it does raise some real questions about luggage provision on board and the fact that is it safe does it cause injuries anyway the other one that i want to touch on just before we move on is the fact that lumo's incident response plan didn't require actions that provided assurance that the train was in a safe condition to continue its journey following the incident the train was inspected by the crew from the platform so it had just been through quite a strenuous experience. It had gone through a set of points three times the speed it was meant to. Arguably, we've heard now from the REIB that it was pretty close to the point where it would have ended up sliding along on its side. But in terms of checking that that train was fit to continue before it went on on its way to London with a different driver, the driver of the train and a driver who was travelling as a passenger stood on the platform and looked at the edge of the train. Now, if you're not seeing the problem with this, it is two things. You only see one side of the train from a platform. So they can check the right-hand side of the train, but they don't know if there's anything going on on the left-hand side of the train. And actually, the other problem is that from the platform, you don't see everything that you might want to just have a cursory look at. Not all your suspension components are going to be visible. Not all your wheels are incredibly visible because you need to be down at track level to actually get a good look at some of this stuff so arguably it was not an effectual way of doing those checks and the train did proceed on to london with a different driver and it was absolutely fine but what if it hadn't been in any case this one in terms of recommendation delivers four firstly that lumo which is actually the trading name of a company called east coast trains limited should review and amend as necessary its route risk assessment process 
to ensure that it considers junctions where there is a potential risk of overspeeding or a greater risk of overspeeding and then review the control measures to intend review the control measures in place intended to ensure that the risks from drivers exceeding permissible speeds at diverging junctions is adequately mitigated which all of these recommendations come out like a big old mouthful sometimes but essentially saying you have a risk assessment for this route go and review it make sure that it covers junctions where there's more risk if people overspeed and ensure that the risks of that problem is adequately mitigated by other actions in the risk assessment. Second one goes to network rail, and that tells them that they should A, identify junctions fitted with approach controls where the risk could lead to derailment, so like this one, and B, share that information with the operators of trains that use those junctions so there can be a collective reassessment of trains overspeeding at those junctions. So this would essentially say to network rail in the context of Peterborough, identify that junction there is a greater risk there from overspeeding because of the consequences that are potentially happening so then network rail would be to share that with lnar with hull trains with grand central with uh lumo of course to sort of say look these are the risks here collectively let's work together and reassess what needs to be done to control that the third recommendation states that based on the findings of those assessments, Network Rail should jointly consider and implement risk mitigation measures at those junctions. So that's the second part of what I've just rambled on about. Finally, we're back to Lumo with that fourth recommendation, stating that they should assess the risk of high volumes of large and likely heavy luggage stored in overhead luggage racks, which can fall on passengers if the trains suffer significant lateral accelerations which is the fancy way of saying if you throw that train from side to side, those bags are going to fall off. Very firmly, this one was linked into those injuries sustained by passengers as that waterfall of suitcases slid off the overhead racks. And there's images of this in the report from the onboard CCTV of just a wall of cases falling off the rack. So that is number two briefly run through. Lots missed there. Definitely enough content in this near miss for a full future episode. Uh, and for the record, I'm absolutely calling this a near miss, a very near miss, because we were so close to the point where this train could have essentially just capsized when the difference between a crash and an incident is only a few miles an hour or a few degrees of radius. To me, that is far too near a miss. Published on the 27th of July then, our third report to glance over is the washing out of the track underneath a passenger train at Haddiscoe down there in South Norfolk. Summary to this one tells us that at 7.45 on Sunday the 30th of January, that's in the morning, a passenger train which was travelling from Norwich to Lowestoft ran out onto a washed out section of track between Reedham and Haddiscoe stations. So a nice quiet Sunday morning, obviously a very lightly loaded train crewed by a driver and a guard, but with only five passengers on board. On approach to that section of line, the driver had seen that the track was flooded ahead of the train, so he brought it to a stand. But once the train stopped, he noticed that the ballast was washing away under the train, under the flood water that was running across the tracks. Decision then was made to set back the train, reverse it, essentially, away from the dangerous section. But by the time the driver was preparing to drive back towards Reedham, that situation worsened and a section of the ballast washed away. That left us a nice big void under the track on which the train was standing. As the driver moved the train, it started to lean over and 
Well, the driver therefore made the decision that it was too dangerous to continue moving the guard, uh, the train, and they and the guard evacuated the five passengers. What do we think the immediate cause of this one was? Nice and simple, I think, if you're getting the, the pattern for how these immediate causes are worded. Train 2 Juliet 66 entered a section of track that was flooded. That is the cause of the accident. Very, very self-explanatory, but in all fairness, this specifically references that the fact that the train was travelling under clear signals with no restrictions imposed, the driver was not aware that the track ahead was flooded. Forward-facing CCTV taken from the train shows that there was water on the railway at Haddiscoe when the train stopped. Causal factors, as ever, will tell us a bit more about why this accident took place, and primarily it was that water overspilled flood defences and flooded the track. The driver was actually in radio contact with the signal already to report water escaping the banks of the river next to the railway when they saw standing water ahead of the train and brought it to a stand. So he was reporting a risk of flooding to the railway when he saw some flooding to the railway. This very high water level at the time was a result of two phenomena, tidal surge and tidal locking, which certainly did not play well with the fact that the RIB investigation also found that there were localised slow spots low spots, sorry, of the flood defences which allowed overtopping on the day of the incident. So this area is a very flood-prone, tidal-level susceptible area, but there are a lot of flood defences in this area that are supposed to keep water in the river area and not on the railway. But there were localised spots in this flood defences which had sunk down to a level where there were I think it would be fair to say ineffectual at this point looking at what we're talking about. There are some really nice diagrams within the report as well which explain how those low spots were created through the gradual sort of failing of piles that were slumping or tilting and these piles formed the riverbanks and there's also some decent explanation for how these areas were developing but uh, not captured in assessments of the defences themselves. So if you like a butchers as a good cross-section and reading some good data, then uh, get yourself over to the report. There's also some good discussion about the fact that 2 Juliet 66 was signalled normally between Reedham and Haddiscoe, even though the track was flooding near Haddiscoe and not prevented from accessing the railway. This was primarily down to the fact that Network Rail was not aware that water was entering the railway in the Haddiscoe area. There were no staff in the area who had responsibility for monitoring water levels, and this was the first train of the day, so nobody else had happened upon it to catch it. However, Network Rail's flood risk management processes were not effective at warning that the track at Haddiscoe was at serious risk of flooding. They do have a flood warning defence system. It's their main mechanism for being warned of flood risk. And it was offline, wasn't working. And the fact that it was offline and wasn't working was communicated to two members of operational Network Rail staff by email, 1841 on the 29th. They weren't working. The time that those emails were sent to those members of staff were sent at the point when those guys weren't on shift. So they didn't see the email, they didn't see the problem, they didn't get that flood warning defence system back online. But as daft as it sounds, the REIB has concluded that the flood warning defence system being offline didn't actually contribute to this incident because the way the email alerts are configured in that system, those email alerts are sent only for those assets that are categorised as A, risk in the system, and had a score was in category B, so no alert would have been sent anyway, even if the system had been online. Other things the report flags up then is that the Environment Agency's management of flooding risk in the area didn't account for, and wasn't required to account for, the impact of localised flooding on the railway. 
and the fact that Network Rail was not effectively managing the risks to its assets and services associated with the reliance upon third-party flood defences. Network Rail had a responsibility to actually ensure that the flood defences were sufficient, even though they weren't responsible for the flood defences. The crux of the matter is that the Environment Agency and Network Rail Anglia weren't effectively collaborating in their management of flooding risk at Haddiscoe. This meant that no joint strategy was in place to protect the railway from flooding at this location. On to recommendations, and this one's quite a hefty one. There are five here. Firstly, that the Environment Agency and Network Rail should agree a shared understanding of how railway-related flooding risk along this area at Haddiscoe is managed. Secondly, that Network Rail should develop processes for the effective identification recording and management of sites at risk from coastal slash tidal and fluvial flooding. Fluvial, coincidentally, is now my word of the week because it's been a while since I've heard that one. Third recommendation is that Network Rail should ensure that flood warnings from external organisations are managed and disseminated in a timely manner to operational and maintenance staff and that any required response is clearly identified in their integrated weather management plan. And the final two recommendations are that Network Rail should liaise with the Environment Agency, Natural Resources Wales and local authorities in Scotland who are responsible for tidal flood defences so that they can identify any risks arising from the overtopping or failure of those defences which could affect the safety of Network Rail infrastructure across the country. And that wraps up our shallow dive, not into water, I hasten to add, into Haddiscoe. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Our fourth and penultimate report of this episode brings us back up north to Lover's Hole Car Junction. I realise I am flying through these at quite a breakneck speed, but the whole point of this format is just to have a quick look at them, not to dive in deep with... Uh, with all the details that you might expect from a normal full episode. In any case, this one was published on the 3rd of August. Happily, this is the only report we'll be looking at today, which covers two trains, well, actually colliding with each other, or rather, one into another. While the results here were far less serious, we could do well to remember that last week's full episode actually told a story of a similar nature to this from Eccles in 1984. Summary of the report tells us that around 6.21 on Tuesday, the 5th of August, July 2022, freight train 4 Echo 1-1 passed a signal at danger and collided with the rear of a stationary freight train. 4 Echo 1-1 was travelling from uh, Felixstowe to Masbury near Rotherham and comprised of a Class 66 holding 35 wagons behind it and 
This train had left the East Coast Main Line at Loversall Car Junction near Doncaster and was travelling at 48 miles an hour when it passed signal D197. I've just broken all the rules I keep talking to you about when we're talking about railway communication and using the uh, phonetic alphabet, so I apologise and I will go back, rewind and say when it passed Delta 197 signal showing a red aspect. This was meant to protect a second freight train for Echo 82, which was standing in the section of track ahead of it. As a result, Echo 11 struck Echo 82 while travelling at approximately 28 miles an hour. The driver of Echo 11 was taken to hospital as a precaution, discharged later the same day, and all the way at the front of the other train, the other driver didn't sustain any injuries, thankfully. The big issue with things like this, however, is that the collision caused significant damage to the infrastructure, the leading loco and wagons of 4 Echo 11 and the rear wagons of 4 Echo 82. Knock-on effect of all of this is that the route remained closed for 26 days for recovery, track repair work and... Well, cliches are cliches for a reason and we've all heard the phrase, time is money. It is a nice meaty report and as before we won't be covering every single aspect here so as I kind of always say, I'd recommend you go away, have a little read if you are interested and have the time. Looking at the pattern from the rest of the episode, the immediate cause will not surprise you. It is that train 4 Echo 11 passed signal Delta 197 at danger and did not stop before the collision. But we know that the causal factors are going to outline a little bit more about why that took place. And the main one was that the driver had lost awareness of the driving task he was undertaking. He was travelling at 54 miles an hour when he acknowledged the AWS warning for that red aspect. The AWS magnet, that's located at the same position when the signal and the stuff beyond it comes first into the driver's view. And GBRF requires drivers to control the speed of their train so that when they're coming up to a red signal, when they pass over the AWS magnet for that red signal, they should be travelling at no more than 10 miles an hour. Considerably faster at 54 miles an hour than you'd expect. And that's especially concerning when you consider that the tail light of the other train came into view at about the same time. 1.2 seconds after the red signal came into view, that driver stuck the full train brake in. However, we know that a freight train takes considerable time and distance to actually pull up. The driver specifically stated that he lost awareness before the single yellow at the preceding signal and he regained it when he saw the red. But the report also highlighted that the driver was probably experiencing the effects of fatigue when 4Echo 11 approached Delta 197. The shift that the accident took place on was the sixth in a row for the driver, running between the 29th of June to the 4th of July. By the time that shift was due to have ended, they would have worked 59 hours and 43 minutes over the course of that run of shifts. The accident day and the days before so the accident day and the day immediately before were rest days that the driver had elected to work and all of those shifts had been between nine and a half and ten hours. Also of note is that it was actually rostered on for a further three days following the accident. Three 12-hour shifts, which he didn't work, of course. He was stood down because of the accident, but that would have brought him up to 96 hours nearly of work in nine days. Kind of difficult not to get fatigued in those circumstances, I think. Um, there was another aspect of awareness that the report observed, which was low workload. And that probably played a key part in this as well. And also that the driver's expectation of the aspect had had an impact as well. The report tells us that after leaving Peterborough, all of the signals, every single one, 
encountered by 4 Echo 11 were green aspects. That was until the train approached Lovers Hall Car Junction. So, 78 minute journey, very little stimulus. Get the train up to speed, control the train speed. Signal green, signal green, signal green for 78 minutes. And a sustained period of low workload can result in a state of mental underload in which a driver's attention to the driving task is diminished because of a lack of stimulation. We've, um, you know, you, you, me, and everyone else whose experience of driving is predominantly cars. Um, you get it on the motorway. If you take a motorway drive on an evening, overnight, when there's not many cars, you might be doing a long journey. You know, I drove down to Brighton earlier this year and it was a case of get onto the M1, stay on the M1 for 100 miles. And at night when we were coming back and we had the same journey in reverse, but there was no real traffic. There was no overtaking to do there was no stopping and starting in traffic jams because it was that long motorway it was no coming off at this junction looking for the next junction you know when you get onto a road and it's stay on this road for 100 miles you can feel your concentration waning in my circumstance that was pull off at the services get a coffee do something different to keep myself awake but in Train driving, I suppose you kind of have to just go where you're going. And 78 minutes isn't that long a period of time. But if you're not undertaking any tasks, just steadily plodding along at 50, 60 miles an hour, not even having to steer, you can understand how a state of mental underload might start to develop. Add into this old chestnut that although the driver was very familiar with the route, they couldn't remember ever being stopped at Delta 197. Normally, they were signalled off the East Coast main line at Lovers Hall Car, straight through to Doncaster Decoy Yard without being stopped at any of the signals there. So the Doris experienced the signal before, 187, showing a double flashing yellow, then 189, showing a single flashing yellow, and 191, initially showing a single yellow and stepping up as the train approached. So the investigation found that Delta 197, the signal that the driver passed to cause the accident, that being red was a usual event. Analysis of the signalling data for trains routed from the East Coast Main Line at Lovasol Car Junction for the five days before the accident showed that none, not one train, received a red aspect in that period. All of this is, I suppose, a contributory factor, but the bottom line here is that it's a, that, that signal being able to show a red and trains being able to be brought to a stand at that signal is entirely in line with operating rules and it's something a driver should have been able to comply with. It wasn't normal, but it was entirely in the expectation of what normal signalling could look like. One new recommendation off the back of this report, and I do apologise, I've probably skimmed over this quite lightly. This report goes into a lot of detail about fatigue, shift managements, commuting time to depots, etc., etc. There's a lot in there. But like I said before, this extra episode is turning out to be quite a long one already my not sure if it'll stay this way by the time I've done the edit but my time is saying 36 minutes now and I was kind of thinking this will be a whistle stop tour in any case that one recommendation is as follows GBRF the operator of the accident train should review its existing policies and processes relating to fatigue management this review should consider how the risks of driver fatigue are assessed and controlled as well as the relevant law, guidance and good practice from other industries that might be applicable. 
And that one's a key, actually. In rail, we like to think we're really, really good at safety. We're good at managing processes. We're good at making sure that rules and regs are put in and recorded and reviewed quite well. But we aren't the only industry that does that in that good a way. Um, so every now and then it's helpful to look out to other industries, the aviation industry, for example, um, seafaring. There are other industries that have to contend with the issues of things like fatigue or human factors complications. And we could do well to look out every now and then and make sure that we might be doing best practice for the industry, but are we doing best practice full stop? Anyway, with that one out of the way, I think that brings us on to our last report of the episode. So our fifth and final report of the day was published on the 8th of August and covers another near miss, a particularly scary one for a few members of rail staff involved. 2358 on the 10th of July 2022, Two track workers narrowly avoided being struck by a train while they were working close to Penkridge Station. The train was travelling at 61 miles an hour heading up towards Stafford when the driver saw the track workers standing on the line and sounded the locomotive's horn. One of the workers saw the train, warned his colleague, they both jumped clear of the track less than one second before the train reached their position. Summary of the report tells us that the incident occurred because the track workers did not have a recognised safe system of work in place to protect them from approaching trains. They'd split off from a larger group to operate an isolating switch for the overhead line south of Penkridge Station. When they left the group, the track workers and the person in charge, who I'm going to call a pick for the rest of this episode, didn't reach a mutual understanding of the safety arrangements that would apply while they were gone. And the guys on the ground, well, they believed that the line they were standing on was blocked to the passage of trains, as it had been when they'd left the group. At the same time, the pick believed that the track workers were going to be standing away from the track in a position of safety. So he allowed the line block to be removed without warning them. Well, that is um, something to consider, isn't it? The immediate cause is, of course, that the two track workers were stood on an open line as the train approached them, and having looked at some of the images in the document, they are incredibly lucky that this is a near miss and not a fatal report like we saw previously. Clearly, this shouldn't have taken place, and looking a bit more closely at the sequence of events, it will have been a terrifying experience for those guys who were down there on the track. At 23.54, the pick received a telephone call from the signaler asking for the line block on the down Penkridge to be given up, and that would allow a train to pass. The pick and the three people with him stood clear of the track, and then stated to the signaler that the line was clear, while of course the other two members of the team were still stood down, further down on the down line, on the track. Line blockage was removed at 23.55, and at 23.57, a freight train approached from the north, passing the picks group on the up Penkridge line. So the track that they were working on, there's now one train travelling south on the line past them. A bit close, but absolutely fine. And they passed the main group with the pick and the three guys who were with him and then continued down and the train went past the other two guys who were stood on the down line still where the pick didn't know that they were. So this is the situation they found themselves in. They are stood on the down line with one train running alongside them on the up. 
They do not know at this point that the line they are currently standing on had been opened to traffic. So that train on the up begins to pass them. Nice and loud train metre or so away from you. Freight wagons, not the quietest things in the world. At the same time, as a courtesy, let's not forget that he believed they were clear, the pick called one of the two men to inform them that the line blockage had been removed, just as a just to let you know, guys, I've, I've took the line block off and the down. But due to the noise of the passing train, they were unable to hear each other and the call was just abandoned. So, they're still stood there. Which brings into the picture the train on the down line. Seeing the track workers on the line ahead, he approached and sounded the train's horn. About that time, like I said, one of the guys looked down to the south and saw the train's headlights, shouted to the other, and both staff jumped clear of the track. And it is less than a second before the train reached their location. And until the forward-facing CCTV from the locomotive was actually downloaded and looked at, neither party thought it was as close as it was. I think there was probably some um, clean underwear required, but neither knew that it was as close as less than a second. And you can see in the still images in the report that the headlamps of the track workers are just visible in the darkness. Um, far too close to a train that's travelling at 60 miles an hour. As is too often the case with incidents like this, the causal factors lead with the fact that the track workers are not working under a recognised safe system of work, and these are so important as a principle. They are that the whole the documentation and the understanding that says that what you are doing is safe and safe to do is that safe system of work, and without it, where is the guarantee? The track workers had previously been working under a safe system of work that the pick had established for the wider group, but when they moved away from the pick and started going off on their own, they were no longer effectively working under that control or within that system. And at the time the group split, the person in charge, the pick and the two track workers did not come to a clear mutual understanding of the safety arrangements. They had a chat just before the two track workers walked to the switch on the south side of the station but there's conflicting witness evidence as to the content of that conversation, and it's clear that they had different understanding of what the arrangements were once they split from the group. The pick believed he told the two to remain separated, a phrase which at this depot generally meant remain in the cess, that area next to the track, but not on the track. While the track workers didn't recall that instruction, and they walked off from the group in the belief that the line blockage that had been in place for the last hour would remain in place to protect them. And there have been far too many fatal accidents over the last couple of years with track workers being struck by trains and even more near misses. Even just looking at RAIB reports listed as relevant in this report, there is four, including when in the 3rd of July 2019, two track workers were struck and fatally injured by a passenger train at Margamese Junction on the South Wales main line. That was a terrible incident probably made even worse so by the fact that there was a third worker with those two who was very nearly killed but survived and got to experience it all. Two recommendations off the report then. Firstly, that Network Rail should undertake a review of the relevant rules, standards, procedures and training material to ensure that adequate instructions and guidance exist for persons in charge and that controllers of site safety as well um, need to be aware of the actions to be taken when track workers split from a group. So specifically targeting this, having a safe system of work and dividing people up, what is the 
procedure, what are the rules and what needs to exist for that to be done safely. Uh, and the second is also for Network Rail, and that says that they should undertake a review of how the rulebook requirement for a COS, which is the controller of site safety, that particular role on a worksite, um, how, what the requirement is for them to observe and advise that the group is being undertaken in practice. The results from that review should be used as required to produce appropriately updated rules, guidance and training for those who are planning, approving and implementing safe systems of work. They're very much focusing in on getting safe systems of work safe. And that's it. That concludes our first ever RIB Roundup. Hope you liked it. And if you did, feel free to reach out to me on uh, Twitter or X. Although I think I refuse to call it that just yet. I'm quite attached to Twitter as a concept. You can also reach out to me on Facebook. I do apologise. There are people who have reached out to me on Facebook um, over the last few months. I have not seen those messages. I do not know why. I got a new phone Um this week, I uploaded the you know the, the, the app, the Facebook um, business suite app, so I could actually log into that. And then all of a sudden, there was about 10 messages that I just had not seen at all. Never got a notification, never realised they were there. So I have very much want to apologise for that one. And I'm going to try and make a point now of reaching out and, and reaching back out to those people and saying, sorry, I wasn't ignoring you. But anyway, Twitter still works, even though Elon is really trying to make it not work. And I'm getting far too distracted. In any case, this is a new format, so part of this new relaunch of the podcast. So if you do like it, let me know. If you don't like it, let me know. So keen to get opinions either way. Do like, share, review the podcast. Um, please come and interact with me on social media. I do like to, to talk to people and share bits and bobs. As ever, just search for Signals to Danger or Daniel Fox Rail. And that is it from me. So until the next time you hear my voice, travel safe. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.